of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. 
I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. For my life was ebbing away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign of the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. We have such a fantastic story to talk about. And in this series, as we've been doing these Bible stories mixtape, the story we have to talk about is not just Jonah, but is the larger, bigger story of God. And we've been asking, can we look at familiar stories and see them in a new way? And can they sparkle with almost new glimmers and new hints of new things that make us really want to press in deep to who God is and what his character is all about? So we've been trying to pull up these interesting bits of the story, and I'd really like to pull the one we talked about last week, which was the Israelites passing through the Sea of Reeds, and put it next to this week, which is Jonah and the fish. And really just think of, I'm not going to highlight a lot of them, but I'd love to say again, because I'm, I'm big on like sending you home with a task. Jonah is a really short book. There's only four chapters and it's really, really easy to read. And it's a great story. I would encourage you to go read the Israelites passing through the Sea of Reeds and then read Jonah and try to just hear the different echoes of what is going on and then ask, why are these words, these symbols, these phrases being echoed in these two different stories? Because one of them is at the very beginning of Israel becoming a nation. It's the Israelites are being pulled out of Egypt, right? And it's this moment where God can demonstrably show himself to his people by actively delivering them from oppression and then very actively giving them provision and guidance and protection against their enemy. 
And now Jonah is going to be at the other end of the scale, at the other end of history, well, further along in history, I should say, when the Israelites have been a nation. And in fact, by now they've split into two, Southern Kingdom of Judah, Northern Kingdom of Israel. So this idea of them being God's people has been etched into their being, although their ability to reflect God in the world around them has had its ups and downs throughout their history. Okay, so we went from God showing himself so remarkably to his people in order to draw them to him, so he, he becomes their national God, right? He is the God of Israel. And now that the nation is firmly established, we're being pushed into the idea of what does it mean for God to be God of the world, and not just a God who belongs to Israel, but what happens when God starts pushing beyond that? So we get to explore it through the book of Jonah, uh, which is very fun, I think. It will, um, if you allow it, it'll push a few buttons and make you squirm just a bit, but you have to get beyond it being a child's story in order for it to really do a work on you. So the book, it's only four chapters, really short. It uh, basically is how not to be a prophet right? Just don't be like Jonah. I say that, I mean, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, um, when in reality, the colorful character of Jonah is actually providing for us a clarifying lens on the character of who God is, which is a very prophetic thing to do anyway. So in that way, he really is a good prophet. This is a very unique book in that this little tiny book is within a wider group of texts that we call the Minor Prophets, and the minor prophets are made up of lots of collected sayings from all these different prophets that have been gathered and organized and put together in books. And Jonah is unique because it's not a gathering of sayings of Jonah, it's a narrative. And it's really unique because although it has poetic elements to it, it is this narrative flow. And Jonah is full of satire. It is humorous and exaggerated from beginning to end. So the task that God gives Jonah is crazy. There is a huge wind, a mighty storm, a massive fish of some sort. When Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, the city is impossibly large. And maybe at the crux of this satire is the fact that Jonah thinks that there is something bad in the over-generous nature of God's grace. So as we get into it, uh, let's set the context, as I always like for us to do. Um, we're, this story is situated in what we could call the Assyrian century. So Assyria has risen up in the Mesopotamian area, is becoming the international empire on the scene who is pretty much controlling the shape and flow of everything in this Mediterranean world. Assyria, I mean, if there is ever a time to bring in a good Lord of the Rings reference, it's when you talk about Assyria. Because Assyria, leaving the area of Tigris and Euphrates, and pushing the boundaries out is very much like the gates of Mordor opening very slowly to that bass drum beat 
and then this terrifying enemy comes out. Do you know what I mean? Okay, so the Lord of the Rings people are like grinning and nodding and everyone else has blank faces, but you know. Uh, so this is Assyria. Assyria has reshaped the Israelite kingdom, the kingdoms. They are a terrifying, terrifying nation. So I don't even know, like, I think to really get into the crux of the book of Jonah, we really have to imagine what that fear and trembling and horror against Assyria would have been like for the readers of this text. And so if I, I'll throw out a couple examples, maybe. Um, do you remember not that long ago, actually, when ISIS kind of came onto the scene? And it just seemed like every time we were listening to the news, there was something mind-blowing horrific about what was going on in the areas that ISIS was controlling. Do you remember this? At this time, there were a lot of biblical scholars that started going, oh my gosh, what we're seeing ISIS do looks just like Assyria. And so if you were to think of that horror that you felt towards that time, and we were so far away from where ISIS actually was operating. So there was an, a buffer of separation for us, but think of the people in the way of ISIS. Think about that, because that's how the Israelites would have thought of the Assyrians. So you could close your eyes and imagine a person or a thing that brings that kind of terror for you now. I don't know if it is a people group who have completely different ideologies from you, who you think are creating massive amounts of havoc in society and in the world. Maybe keep that person or that group of people in mind through this text, because this is how the text is going to get under your skin. Who is the people group who is just that far away from being anything that looks like redeemed humanity? And with this, we get into our text. So in the very beginning, we start with this call, and God comes to Jonah, and he says, go at once to Nineveh, and quite literally, it is, get up and go to Nineveh, because the wickedness has come up before me. And there's something about this wickedness has come up before God, and you just know that means judgment and or grace. And Jonah knows this too. And so when Jonah responds in verse 3, in the bulletin it says, but Jonah set out to flee. But quite literally, and this is some of the fun of the language in Jonah, quite literally is Jonah gets up and we all go, oh, he's going to follow God and goes down. So God says, get up and go to Assyria. Jonah gets up and flees. And then throughout the whole book, we have Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down into the belly of the ship. Jonah goes down into the sea. And Jonah goes down into the belly of the fish. So what Jonah is doing, the language that the author is using is God is saying, get up and go to do this thing. And Jonah's going, I'm going to go down in the complete opposite direction of anything you want me to do. And you go, but why is Jonah doing that? He's putting so much effort into avoiding the one thing that God told him to do. The very end of Jonah gives us the reason. Jonah is going to quote scripture, and he quotes from the book of Exodus, chapter 34. 
But he says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love or abounding in hesed, which is a word that has come up several times during this mixtape series, that die-hard, ultimate, covenant loyalty that God has for people. And Jonah's going, you are this God, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, a God who relents from sending calamity. And he's like, that's why I avoided going, because I knew who you were. And so knowing who you are is what prevented me from going because I don't want you to give those people a chance to repent, right? They should be receiving your anger and judgment, but I know you're a God who also gives mercy. And so Jonah puts all this effort into escaping and uh, ignoring what it is that God wants him to do. And so we see him on a ship and we see him even here, he's quite passive. And the sailors, these Gentiles who are around him are the ones who are filled with the kind of fear and respect for who God is. So even in this second part of the story, we're seeing the character of Jonah next to the character of all these other Gentiles who are going to pray for God's mercy on them as they toss Jonah overboard. And then we get to chapter two. Now it's written as just a nice clean paragraph here, but it really is a song. This is poetry. And Jonah is quoting a lot of different Psalms. In fact, throughout the whole text, we see Jonah as a character intimately familiar with Israelite scriptures because he keeps making reference to them. It is in the shape of a prayer of thanksgiving. And we would almost expect this to be a prayer of repentance, but it's not. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. And he uses this ancient Near Eastern imagery that doesn't make sense to us now because we have a different understanding of the shape of the world and the physics of the world and the creation of the world. But he's going to make reference to this old understanding that ancient people had that you had the flat land on which we all live, above which is a dome, which is the sky that we see above. And above the dome, there are windows in the dome, and then we have the waters above the dome. And through the windows, when the water comes down, that's the rain that we receive. Under the flatness of the ground are the seas down below, and the roots of the mountains sink way down into this subterranean world where the other waters stir. That subterranean world for the Israelite mindset was Sheol, or death. And here we have Jonah who is going to talk about being in the belly of this fish and he uses lots of water imagery because in a lot of the Psalms, this water drowning imagery is death and separation, the ultimate kind of separation from God. There's also this interesting, almost geographic quality to this text. Because if we think of the temple of God, the presence of God being in the temple in Jerusalem, which sits on the mountain up high. And we have Jonah halfway through his song. And he says, 
I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed over me, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head. And some of that should be echoes of our Exodus story we talked about last week. And he says, so these, uh, the weeds are wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Right, so he's, he's even just kind of geographically in the ancient mindset going, the height or the epitome is in the presence of God in Jerusalem. And I have gone as far as the roots of the mountains, which are anchored down in Sheol. But this recognition that even though he's so far away from the presence of God, and yet God is still there and still present and still able to hear this cry, this plea that he has. And God instructs the fish to vomit Jonah up and Jonah goes up to Assyria. Now, we didn't print chapters three and four, but I wanna rush us through those chapters because they're really quite fantastic. Jonah, as we get into chapter three, is a very, very reluctant prophet who, again, is not putting a whole lot of effort into doing what he is supposed to do. And he walks partway into this great city of Nineveh, and his message of repentance is as short as 40 more days and Nineveh is overthrown. Now, you could read this lots of ways. I like to dramatize Jonah being very reluctant in his message that he is given. And yet, in the shortness of the message, this lack of passion that is here, except for maybe celebrating the fact that they're going to be destroyed, the people, in contrast, the people respond in a big way. Because the response is, people immediately start repenting. And word immediately gets to the king, the king of this terrifying nation whose capital city is Nineveh. And the king sends out a decree, everyone, men, women, children, and sheep and cows, like in the animals, put on sackcloth and repent. It's a moment where you kind of go, like, I don't even know how a sheep or a cow puts on sackcloth. Right, but it's one of those, to the fullest extent of everything that is in my care, we are all going to be very exaggerated in our repentance and see if God will relent. And Jonah, unhappy about the success of his very short message, goes to the outside of the city up onto a mountain to watch, hopefully maybe their repentance won't take and God will ultimately destroy them after all, right? So Jonah, he's the least obedient of all of our prophets and the most successful because the entire city of Nineveh repents. Okay, so chapter four. Now we get this intimate conversation between God and Jonah. Jonah's watching Nineveh, super grumpy. He's now isolated from everyone and he's upset that God has shown compassion. And even then, God causes some sort of plant to grow. And this plant seems to provide even more shade than what Jonah has initially. And Jonah is relieved, and he loves this plant that God has provided for him. 
And then God provides a worm and the worm goes and eats at the plant and then a scorching hot wind and these winds come off the Arabian desert and are really, really hot and miserable. And this eastern wind kills the plant. And Jonah is so upset because the plant has died. But he's upset because it's now an inconvenience to him because now he's hot. And God is going to bring this to Jonah's attention and go, really, Jonah, this plant, you've done nothing. You didn't provide the plant. You didn't grow the plant. You didn't nurture the plant. But you're really upset and you feel compassion over the death of this plant, but it's compassion that comes out of your own inconvenience. Shouldn't I, the God of the world, be able to look at these people even though they are your most bitter enemy, and look at them and have even more compassion on them. And the book of Jonah ends with a question mark. It's just really great. We have no idea how Jonah is supposed to, uh, how, what Jonah is supposed to do, but that's part of the artistic nature of this book because it means all of you, as the reader of the text, is the recipient of God's question. Aren't all those other people also deserving of the kind of mercy that I have already given you? And so often, and especially in Jonah's case, and I have a, a tiny bit of compassion for him, right? Because people who are in Jonah's position, they really want the anger and the justice of the Lord. And they really want it to come like at, on a particular timeline that is sooner rather than later. And God is going, and yet beyond that justice and anger is the mystery of the depths of my compassion. And that is such a hard equation for us to even understand. I mean, I kind of get Jonah, right? If he goes to Assyria, and if Assyria repents as they did, or as Nineveh does, then is he, is he seen as a traitor to his own people? who are in the presence, in the process of being completely obliterated and oppressed by Assyria, and yet he took God's grace to them. We could also say, remember, Jonah is embedded into the minor prophets. And look at how persistent God has been to communicate with his own people, to show his own people how he is a God who protects and he is a God who brings justice against their enemy. And he's a God calling his own people to repentance and to hesed towards him. And the slowness of God's own people to repent. And just think of that contrast. Look how quick the people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh and the animals of Nineveh responded to God and how God's own people are dragging their feet. We get this uh, like a, a little snapshot in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament reading. Jesus, who is anchored very deeply in the Israelite story and in Israelite scriptures, who is in the process of redeeming the Jewish people, is also the one who says, but I am not to be controlled. My compassion is going to go beyond these nationalistic borders that we have put into place. And Jesus shows this over and over and over in his ministry and who he chooses to touch and interact with. 
And for us, when he talks about, for just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, and my question is, how was he a sign to Nineveh? What kind of sign is Jonah being? And Jesus is going, I am that kind of sign, even greater than. And then he mentions another outsider, the Queen of Sheba, also outside of God's people. But when she came and interacted with Solomon, she recognized the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus going, and am I not greater than Solomon? And it's easy for us, the Gentile church, those of us who are not of Jewish blood, to then go, we like this message because it shows God's ultimate heart for this universal humanity. And we are all in favor of that because we are recipients of that. And so we go, oh, that's so great. But a little bit of the challenge here is once we're the church, do we start to possess God and think God belongs to us? His compassion, his protection, and his provision belongs to us. And God is always going to go, nope, I belong to everyone. I will always push beyond the boundaries that you have set up that make you feel safe, secure, and like you have formed your identity. Is there anyone actually outside the reach of God? Can we actually determine who God's enemies are? These are part of the challenge of the book of Jonah. And a part of me as we sang one of the songs earlier in the refrain that says, when they see us, may they see your mercy. And just like God sent Jonah and partnered with a human, and God entered into conversation with Jonah to make sure that Jonah understood God's character, Jesus is going to tell the disciples and the Holy Spirit is going to be involving the church to say, now you go be this mercy. And the question is, when we go out beyond these walls, are we that mercy? Do people look at us and see God's mercy? Or are we so set on putting up walls of who's in and who's out, of who deserves mercy and who doesn't deserve mercy? Are we so determined to make sure that God's wrath comes on that other, that we forget that God refuses to be contained and his mercy will go? even if we refuse to go. So may that be a challenge for all of us today as we enter this next week to see God's mercy, to challenge ourselves to have that heart of abundant and ridiculous, mysterious mercy of God as we go into the city. Will you pray with me? Holy God, the one who is as particular as providing manna in a wilderness, and as particular as providing water when most needed, and providing shade when most needed. A God who shows up and reveals himself so that we see who God is, and we eagerly join in the groups that say that we belong to you, is still the God who is not satisfied until everyone who's brought in until his mercy has been extended to all people. And may we be a people who are also looking outwards and reaching outwards and extending your mercy to others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.